he falls and then his life takes this downward spiral. And, and you can only liken it to the first three chapters of the book of Romans. The first three chapters of the book of Romans tell us about the downward spiral of man. When man begins to turn his back on the Lord and go after the things of the flesh, these are the things that he can expect. Uh, Galatians tells us that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, how's it go? That will he also reap, right? So what we plant is going to come back on us. And man, that's what we see in David. We see David, he have a, a failure of character. He, he takes another man's wife. He's, uh, he, he develops a conspiracy to kill her husband and to take her as his own. And that choice, that seed he plants comes back to him a hundredfold. Four of his sons are going to die. All as a result, if David knew the price, he would never have paid it. But we always think we're going to get away with it. He's going to lose four of his sons, and right now his, the, the, the third son he's going to lose is Absalom. And Absalom comes in rebellion, and he comes to conquer the kingdom. And David, thinking about the failure he's just had, and thinking about, you know, his, what Amnon had done, and what happened to Tamar, his daughter. I mean, these are all members of his family. And all of a sudden, his life, what one time had seemed like such a, a good and, and wholesome thing, is out of control. Everywhere he turns, something bad is happening. You know, now his son Absalom has an army, and he's on his way to take the kingdom. And David does an amazing thing. He just walks away. Hard to have a war when the other side won't fight. And if David had stayed in the city, there would have been a fight. So he packed up and left. Walked away from it all. His home, his wealth. He took what was left of his family and the army that was loyal to him, which were the guys who had been with him ever since the days of Saul, called David's mighty men, which really is the best part of the army. And he just walked away. He, he set his face away from Jerusalem, and in, in one fell swoop, you know, the, as, he's, as he's walking away, as we were closing out in chapter 15, as he's walking away, he prays. And I don't want you to forget this prayer. In verse 31 of chapter 15, it says, And someone told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So Ahithophel was David's most trusted advisor. By all accounts, all accounts historically, Ahithophel was like one of the wisest men around. He knew what was up. He had great counsel. He was it. But he had this animosity toward David because his granddaughter was Bathsheba. And this, this animosity, this bitterness led him to rebel against God's anointed and find himself on the wrong side. David prays a prayer. It says, David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. First thing he does is he prays. Second thing he does is he goes up on top of the mountain, it says in verse 32, and he worshiped the Lord. So he prays. And what could he do? He can't do anything to, to change what has occurred. Absalom's in coming into to Jerusalem. David prays, Lord, you know, 
turn the, the wisdom of Ahithophel, the foolishness, so people won't listen to him, and then he worships the Lord. You see, finally, in all the chaos, David returns to what made him a man after God's own heart in the first place. Finally, he turns to a man that's willing to pray and worship the Lord. A man who's willing to turn his face toward God, to, to trust in Him wholly, completely. No plans of his own. He's not trying to scheme or accomplish anything. He's just trusting in God. That's the man after God's own heart we've been looking for for several chapters. About that time, a friend of his, Hushai, David's friend, appears. And David basically tells Hushai, you know, brother, you're, you're a good friend, but you're too old to hang out. Why don't you go back? Maybe you can help me some way in Jerusalem. So Hushai is going to go back. And he's going to be part of a spy network, if you will, for David. And at the end of, of chapter 15, it says, So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Bloodless coup. But I want you to recognize something. It's only a bloodless coup because David had the heart of a shepherd and he cared about the people. If David stayed and cared about his position... If David stayed and cared about the title and what he deserved as king, it would not have been bloodless and a lot of people would have died. But David had a shepherd's heart. He cared about the people, so he left. If I'm not here, there's no battle. If I'm not here, there's no fight over the city of Jerusalem. So Absalom comes in. In chapter 16 it begins... So when David was a little past the top of the mountain, so he, he had a time of prayer, and he had a time of worship, okay? And he comes to the top of the mountain, and the very first one of Satan's little darts hits him. You ever notice that when you're low, and you're having a hard time, that is a great opportunity for the devil to get a couple of jabs in? You know that whole thing where you shouldn't hit a man when he's down? The devil never heard that. The devil says, if he's down, I'm a big pummel. I'm going to shoot him with everything I got. So David's down. He's low. He's just crossed over the top of the mountain. So the time of worship has been concluded. And he runs in to a, one of the first, one of the first of the tools that Satan's going to use to bring him down a little further. And his name, you should recognize it as Ziba. Ziba was the servant whom had the charge to him to take care of Mephibosheth. And remember, Mephibosheth was the only living son left of Jonathan. But Ziba, we discover, is a man whose the most important thing in his life was avarice, a desire for wealth, a desire to accumulate things. And when people's desire is wealth, to have wealth, to multiply wealth, they don't really care who they step on to get it. So here you have David at a low time, but Ziba sees it as an opportunity to get ahead. So that's what he does. It says, on the top of the mountain, a little ways past, was Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them two hundred loaves of bread, one hundred clusters of rays, and one hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Wow, that's going to come in handy for a hungry army and king who's, who's fleeing a city. So the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? What are you here for? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. 
And the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint, and the wilderness to drink. So the king's a little suspicious, like, what? Here I am fleeing, you show up with a bunch of donkeys and bread, and it's like, okay, what do you want? You know, there's always some little thing attached. Often there's this string that you didn't see. Well, the king senses there's a string attached. So the king says, and where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? Now you guys remember Mephibosheth is lame. So he can't, he, he, he requires people's help to get around, to do things. Ever since he was young, he'd been in an accident and his, uh, his legs had been broken and so he was lame. So he asked him, where's your master's son? Where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Now, just so you don't have to wait until chapter 19 to know, that's a lie. Mephibosheth is lame and he couldn't get out of the house and Ziba left him behind. And he took all these donkeys and all these loaves and he went to David so that he could get ahead. So he comes to David and he says to David, Oh, Mephibosheth thinks he's going to be king now. And the kingdom will be returned to him. And the king does something that we should not ever do. And that is to make a decision when you don't know everything. Hold your finger here and turn to the Proverbs Solomon maybe has uh, Solomon maybe has some of these very things in mind as he lays out for us the the proverbs. So you join me there. You may beat me because it's taking me all night. Thank you, brother. Oh, so I was looking in the New Testament for that. <laughs> proverbs chapter eighteen. Verse 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. He who answers a matter before he hears it is folly and shame to him. Now, David's understandably a little stressed right now, wouldn't you agree? His whole family's falling apart. You know, two sons are dead. A third one is in rebellion. His daughter has been raped. His family is on the run. The kingdom is in shambles. It's Ziba, because he wants to get ahead, he comes and he says, Oh, Mephibosheth, he's, he's turned his back on you. And, and so, as such, the king answers and says, Well, here, everything that, ha- that belonged to Mephibosheth is yours. So he gives all the land to Ziba. Doesn't take the time to find out what's real or what's not. And we'll find the rest of the story in chapter 19. But that's what he does. He, he, Ziba lies to him. David believes him. Gives him all the lands. It doesn't really matter because if David's never king again, he really doesn't have anything. But Ziba's counting on the fact that David's going to come back into power. And when he does, he's going to remember that and he's going to get... The land of Mephibosheth. Now the scripture goes on. So when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out 
cursing continuously as he came. Now, Shimei is of the tribe of Benjamin, and they now are in the area of the Benjamites. As they're fleeing, they're ultimately going to cross the Jordan River. But as they're coming through the land of Benjamin, they are in an area of strong support of Saul. And this particular person, Shimei, he's of the family of Saul. And so he, being a distant kinsman of Saul, blames David for Saul's death, Jonathan's death, and everything that happened. And before you think Shimei doesn't have a reason to feel that way, do you remember where David was when Saul and Jonathan died? Yeah, he was with the Philistines. Who killed Saul and Jonathan? Philistines did. David wasn't in the battle, but he was on the wrong side when that all went down. So Shimei comes out and he sees David and he's mad. He's angry about all the stuff that's gone on. He's angry about what happened to Saul and Jonathan and his kin, Isbosheth, who had been king before. Remember, some guys killed Isbosheth to try to help David out. And so Shimei is upset, and as he sees David coming, he comes out to him. It says, and he came out cursing continuously as he came. Now, that doesn't just mean he was using bad language. What it means is he is coming out yelling at David. Basically telling him what a loser he is for all the dumb decisions he's ever made in his life. The second attack of Satan. The first one, a guy trying to get ahead. The second one is the pummeling of the man when he's down. So he comes out and he curses. It says in verse 6, he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So you got King David. I want you to picture this. King David coming through. I don't want you to picture King David like he's helpless. He has all the mighty men. The mighty men of David are, are a study all unto themselves. We'll get to them in a few weeks. But the mighty men of David were amazing men of God. Had incredible feats of valor and strength. That God had delivered and strengthened the nation of Israel through these guys. He has, if you will, special forces on either side. So he's not in a position where he can't do something. So they're on his right and his left. And David is in the middle. So in order to throw rocks at David, he's throwing rocks at all these special forces guys too. Guys who have been fighting all the battles for the nation of Israel up until this time. And guys who are itching for a fight. It says that Shimei said thus when he cursed. Come out, come out you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. In whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil. Because you are a bloodthirsty man. That was the curse that he brought upon David. In Philippians chapter 2, the scripture challenges us. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, that word for form in the Greek is the word morphe. It means the exact representation of God. God, not a replica 
The exact representation and character of God. Morphe. Being in the form of God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't consider his deity something to be paraded before the people. So he made himself of no reputation. And the Greek word there is kenosis. He emptied himself. He set aside all his divine right and divine power. And he came, the scripture says, in the likeness of a man. That word likeness means an external form. An external form. On the outside, he was clothed in humanity. Inside, he was still God. Who had laid aside the use of his divine power. Who had laid aside his divine right as God to be worshipped by every single creature he ever created. He set that aside. And then it says, coming in the form of a bondservant. And if you look at that, the word form is the word morphe again. Morphe, that means part of God's nature is. He is a bondservant. He is a servant. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. He said to them after he washed their feet, what you've seen me do, now you do likewise. Follow the example. You want to be greatest in the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say? Be the servant of all. Come in the form of a bondservant. That's the nature of God. In the form of God, the very nature and manifestation of God. He emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. And he came and he was obedient even unto the death. The death of the cross. Now, while we kind of chew on that, there's so much in that scripture that we want to consider, but while you're chewing on that, now I want you to think of David, who being the king, according to Exodus, it was against the law to curse the king. Against the law to curse the king. David's within his rights to shut Shimei up. The men in his army are within their rights to go take his head and it would not have been very difficult. It wouldn't have been a hard thing. But the very nature of God in the heart of David, the the understanding, being a man after God's own heart, knowing what God, who God is, that the Lord is my, what? Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Capital L-O-R-D. God Almighty is my shepherd. Understanding the sovereignty and the power of Almighty God, knowing these things, this is David's response. In verse 9 it says, And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, this is Joab's brother, Joab is the meanest, dirtiest, rottenest, fightingest man in all of Israel. Joab, if there's anybody to be afraid of in Israel, it's Joab. And then the second guy is Abishai. And the third guy would it be anybody related to him. Because they are the meanest people in David's army. Mean, mean guys. So Abishai says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? 
Let me go over and take off his head. The, mean, the, the second meanest guy in all the army says to David, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to go chop off his head. Abishai, if you look back in scriptures, the same guy when Saul came in that said to David, here he is, the Lord's delivered him to your hand. Take him, take him, kill him now. Same guy. David responds to him in verse 10, but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, Abishai and Joab? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then will say, Why have you done so? David said, Shimei could not be here cursing me if God didn't let him be here cursing me. Don't touch him. How do I know that the words from his mouth aren't words from God to my ears? So let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus your Lord, who being in the very form of God, not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself no reputation. The example that my Savior gives me is that he gave his beard to those who plucked his beard. And he gave his back to those who put the stripes upon his back. Who in all of creation could strap God down and beat him without God letting them do so? So David, upon hearing the cursing of Shimei, still retaining that concept of man after God's own heart, he responds in the same way, in the same manner that God himself does. As you consider that, just hold your finger here and go to flip over to 1 Peter. You're headed toward Revelation. And if you get there, go left, because you got too far. And if you get to Hebrews, go right, because you went too far again. In 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Actually, let's look, let's go back to verse 21. It says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He alone is innocent. David was not innocent. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, listen, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus Christ put himself in the hands of the Father and said, Your will be done. David, while Shimei is cursing him, does the same thing. Your will be done. It's a difficult thing to do and a difficult concept to wrap your mind around. But in essence, God calls us to suffer, but to suffer for the name of Christ. Do we understand the difference? Lately, there's been a hubbub about a guy in, I think it's Arizona... And the Arizona authorities have shut down his church. 
And the church stands up and does what the church does. It just believes whatever somebody tells them and runs off saying, claiming that the, that the world is trying, the persecution has finally come and the, and, and the world is going to shut down all these churches. And here's the beginning, here's the beginning. The reality of the story is that for the past year or more, the city in which this man has a home church has asked him repeatedly that because he has more than 150 people coming to his home on a given Sunday to please put fire sprinklers in the room he utilizes for his meeting. He is a 501c3, that means he's a non-profit organization. He receives tithes and offerings from the people who come to his church, and he refuses to do what the law requires for where he lives. And finding no way to get him to concede to what was the requirement of the law, they shut him down. And immediately he proclaimed persecution of the church. So let me settle it for you. Paul wrote, when you suffer, make sure you do not suffer for wrongdoing, but that you suffer for the word of Christ. There's one thing to shut down a church because they are preaching the word of God, which one day will come. It's another thing to be shut down because you will not obey the law. He was shut down for the latter. David, as he's walking and he sees this man cursing him, he knows this is the least he deserves for the things he's done. Christ, who was sinless did not revile those who reviled him, and they were absolutely wrong. And Peter says, he did this as an example for us that we would follow in his footsteps. We can demand our rights, but that flies in the face of of Philippians chapter 2, when Christ emptied himself of his, so that we could obtain salvation. Let this be in you. But when we suffer, don't suffer for doing wrong. Don't suffer for for robbing a bank and get arrested and say, I'm being persecuted as a believer. No, you're being persecuted as a thief. You're being persecuted for what is just and what is right. Let this mind be in you. When you are punished for the cause of, of Christ revile not in return now does that mean if my neighbor builds a house on top of my property line and steals half of my property I'm just supposed to be quiet no it's not the cause of Christ is that the cause of Christ no that's your neighbor trying to steal your land feel free to say what are you doing brother But if you were in church and you're sitting down and you begin to sing hymns and somebody busts in the back door 
And they line everybody up and they chain them up and they slap you around and they push you into a big van and they take you to prison. Jesus said, don't revile, don't fight. They're just treating you like they treated me. That's the difference. David, in seeing what's going on in his life and seeing what's happening for him, and hearing the cursing of Shimei, he says to Abishai in verse 11, See how my son, this is worse, see how my son who came from my own body wants to kill me? How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For so the Lord has ordered him. So the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look at my affliction and that the Lord may repay me with good for his cursing this day. And David and his men went along the road and Shimei went along the hillside opposite and cursed as he went, throwing stones at him and kicking up dust. He's an angry little man. When David comes back to Jerusalem, the very first person who's going to meet him as he crosses the Jordan River is Shimei. First person. But you have to hold on for the rest of the story. Because we're not there yet. So, it says, Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves while they were there. Now verse 15 we go back to Absalom. Meanwhile Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with them. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. I love Hushai. Do you know who Hushai is talking about right now? David. But Absalom is so filled with pride he assumes that Hushai is talking to him. What? Why would you say such wonderful things about me? Aren't you my father's friend? I mean, just look at the, the language, especially evident in the Hebrew, but the language that Hushai uses, he never says King Absalom. He never uses Absalom's name. Every positive thing he says could be applied to David. And Absalom, because he is so full of himself thinks he's talking to him. And he just lets Hushai right into his, his wise men, counsel. He lets him come in and work right next to Ahithophel, which is going to be his downfall, ultimately. So, Absalom says to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go out with your friend? And Hushai said to, to Absalom, No, whoever the Lord and this people and the men of Israel choose, his I will be. Well, who had the Lord chosen as king? David. Did the Lord choose Absalom? No, the Lord hadn't choose Absalom. And with him, I will remain. So Hushai hasn't told a lie yet. I'm here to, for the Lord's anointed. Absalom thinks it's him. Hushai, not Hushai's fault. Absalom's so full of himself. And he says, I'm going I'm to serve him. I'm going to serve the one the people have chosen. I'm going to serve the one that God has chosen. His servant I will be. Furthermore, he said, Whom should I serve? Should I not serve, what's it say? In the presence of his sons? Who's he serving in the presence of his son? He's serving David. As I served in your father's presence, so in the same way that I served David, I'm going to serve in your presence. 
In the Hebrew, almost literally what he's saying, the same way I served David before, I'm serving him now in your presence. And Absalom's like, okay, cool. Come on. Give advice as to what we should do. So, so then the scripture says in verse 20, Absalom says to Ahithophel, give advice. What are we going to do? So Ahithophel says to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strong. Here's Ahithophel's advice. And by the way, it fulfills the prophecy of Nathan. Remember when David was caught in the sin with Bathsheba? He said, what you have done in secret will be done to you in the open. So Ahithophel tells Absalom to go into his father's concubines. Keep in mind, concubines are wives without rights. They still, according to the law, are counted as a wife. And so he goes in and he takes his father's concubines. He sets up a tent on the roof of the building... And he goes in and sleeps with his father's concubines. Three things he accomplishes in so doing. He's proclaiming himself to be king. He's taking what was his father's. And he's doing it publicly so all the people know. Second thing, he's making reconciliation with his father impossible. There's What he is saying to all his supporters, the rebellion that started can never end until it's finished. There's not going to be peace. There cannot be peace now. You, have, you are abhorred in your father's sight. There's no going back. So all his supporters, all the supporters of Absalom, realize that we have just crossed the point of no return. There's only one direction to go now. To war and to the destruction of David. And the, the making full the kingdom, bringing it all under one king. So, this is the advice that he gave. So they pitched the tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Ahithophel was on the money, man. This guy knows what he's doing. And so Absalom follows his plan. Chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And I will come upon him while he is weary and weak, and I will make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king, and I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Ahithophel lays out his plan. Before David has a chance to regroup, to catch his breath, to do anything, he says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will go after him, and I will kill David, and I will bring him back, because I am really bitter, and I want to see David dead. That's what Ahithophel's speech is all about. 
go through and see how focused it is on his revenge against David. He wants to see David dead. Now, had Absalom listened to Ahithophel, barring God's intervention, he'd have won. David's not ready to fight. His men aren't ready to fight. Ahithophel knows it. He knows if we attack him now, we can take the kingdom right now. One person dies, not a big war. Everything's going to be good. But his emphasis in the deliverance to Absalom is on himself. I will go do all this stuff. So Absalom and all the elders, they think, well, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Sounds like a pretty good plan. But Absalom said, now call Hushai. The archite also, let's hear what he has to say. Call that other old fella, Hushai. <laughs> so they call Hushai. Now Hushai hadn't heard anything that, that Absalom had said. So when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this matter. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. Beginning in verse 7, God answers David's prayer. Remember that prayer he started with? Turn the advice of Ahithophel to foolishness. God's going to answer his prayer. Hushai is there. And it says, what shall we do? So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. And Hushai, being a wise man, is going to focus on the one thing that Absalom cannot ignore. Himself. Ahithophel's plan was all about Ahithophel killing David. Hushai's plan is all about exalting and honoring Absalom. I wonder which way he's going to lean. The way of Ahithophel, which was actually wiser. Or is he going to listen to the flattering words of Hushai saying, Oh, this will give you more honor. This is going to give you more glory. Listen to what Hushai said. For you know your father and his men, they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. So he gives them an illustration that he can example, he can understand. A bear and her cu- with her cubs, she's mad. I'm not going near the bear. Hushai says, your dad's like that right now, and so are all his men. And he will not camp with the people. Surely by now he's hidden himself in some pit or a cave, some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first, whoever hears it will say, there is slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. He says, if you rush out there and you send these 12,000 guys and they find David and his men like a bear in in a cave angry, and he wins, the first thing your kingdom is going to experience is defeat. And all the people will say, Absalom's lost his first battle. The very first and the last thing your kingdom will know is defeat. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, he'll melt completely. For all Israel knows your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant. If you let David win, the people are going to say, Oh, David's still the mighty man. We can't beat David. And your support is all going to go away. Therefore, I advise that all Israel be gathered. What's that phrase? 
that all of Israel be gathered to you. Absalom, you lead them. Absalom, you gain the victory. From Dan to Beersheba, call all the army, like the sand that is in the sea, for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. You lead them. You gather this majestic army, all of Israel together, and you be at the head, and you take them, and you gain the victory. All the people remember what a great uh, warrior David was, but if you go and you take them head to head and you beat them, they're all going to follow you. Absalom, Absalom likes this plan so far. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good because it's exalting him. And he likes exaltation. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found and we will fall on him. As the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men who are with him, there will not be left so much as one. We'll utterly annihilate him. That sounds good to Absalom. Moreover, if he is withdrawn into a city, then all of Israel will come with ropes and will pull it into the river until there's not one small stone even found there. Oh, he's just playing into Absalom's pride. You go on full-on war against your dad and you'll beat him. Think how glorious it'll be, the battle. It's really easy to tell someone that who's not been in battle. There's really not much glorious about battle at all. Battle's crazy. Weird things happen in battle. They don't ever talk about those things. So here he says, oh, it'll be glorious, it'll be marvelous, it'll be wonderful. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. The next section of that verse says, For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. He answered the prayer of David. Ahithophel's advice was better. But Absalom was not a shepherd. He didn't care about the people. The fact that Ahithophel's plan would mean far fewer people get hurt was of, was of no matter to Absalom. But the way Absalom saw, sees it, Ahithophel is going to get all the honor because he kills my dad. I should lead a big, mighty army, and we should just obliterate them. Think how important I'll be then. So that's the plan he goes with. And Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David saying, Do not spend the night in the plains of the wilderness, but hurry, cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. So Jonathan and Ahikmaz, staying in Enrigal, for they dared not uh, be seen coming into the city, so a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom, and both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court, and they went down into it. And a woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and put uh, ground grain on it, and the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came, 
to the woman at the house. They said, where is the Hikmahs and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, well, they went over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Israel. Just like the spies with Rahab, remember? They all come looking for them, but the, the woman says, uh, they went that way and they can't find them. So the men are able to take the word to David. It came to pass after they departed, they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, arise, cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. Now, Ahithophel and Hushai, they give their advice. Hushai, when he goes, he doesn't know that they're going to go with his plan. So he sends word to David, they may be coming right now. So you get across the river. You need to get somewhere else. You need to be prepared in case they all come. So that's what this is all about. So they go. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. And by morning, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now, they are in a place called Menachem. They are in a place where Jacob prepared to meet his brother Esau. When he heard that Esau was coming to kill him. That's the same place Jacob wrestled with God. And the Lord touched his hip. And it was out of socket. And he found that all he could really do in the battle that lay ahead was put his trust in God. David's in the same place. And he's going to do the same thing. He's going to put his trust in the Lord. The Lord is my defense. The Lord is my rock. When my heart is overwhelmed, what did David write? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That his strength was in the Lord. That his strength was in him. So, he is in that place and he prepares. Now in verse 23 it tells us what happened later. Now when Ahithophel saw his advice was not followed, he realizes, oh, they're not going to follow my advice. Ahithophel knows, then David's going to win. So he saddled a donkey, and he arose and went home to his house, to the city. And he put his house in order, and he hanged himself. And he died and was buried in his father's tomb. And Ahithophel becomes, on the pages of Scripture, a type of Judas. David would write of him in Psalm 41, that he who has ate bread with me, has lifted up his heel against me. And it's the same phrase Jesus is going to use of the betrayer who was to betray him. Becomes a type of Judas, an example on the pages of Scripture of Judas and what Judas would do. So verse 24 says, So David went to Menachem, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Oh, oh, oh man, here it comes. Absalom's got a huge army. But listen, Absalom has a huge army of guys who probably have not spent much time in battle. David has the mighty men who have fought every battle that Israel has ever been in. Absalom has numbers. But David has the real army. Absalom doesn't care about a single one of those guys. 
David cares about every one of his. Absalom lines himself up and prepares himself for battle. But he's never been in a battle. It says Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. Hmm. Amasa is Joab's cousin. Remember I told you Joab was a bad man. Joab is a bad man. I don't know if we'll see Joab in heaven or not. Most of the things we see him do in scripture are evil. Mean, rotten. He kills everybody. Just the fact that Absalom burned his crops would, would, get, would make me wake up in a cold sweat. Joab killed everybody who ever looked at him sideways. But in this battle, you have father against son and cousins battling. You have brothers on one side and brothers on the other side. We experienced something like that in our own history, haven't we? Civil war is not, you don't, you're fighting against your own kin, your own people. So the leader of Absalom's army is Amasa, the cousin of Joab. And this Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra. That the word next phrase in the Bible says an Israelite. In reality, he is an Ishmaelite. Ishmaelite. In the Chronicles, he's listed as an Ishmaelite. Here he's listed as an Israelite. The greater evidence is in support of him being an Ishmaelite. So just by way of knowing, Jithra, an, uh, an Israelite, says here, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. The armies are, are set up now. Some time obviously has passed. It takes time to get all the armies of Israel gathered. David has had time to prepare. Absalom is ready. The battle is just a, a little ways off. And it happened when David had come to Menachem that Shobi, the son of Nahash, and Rabbah, the, uh, from Rabbah, the people of Ammon, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, uh, from Rogelim brought beds and basins and earthen vessels with wheat, barley, and flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. The Lord sends three of David's friends. We'll learn more about them as we go through chapter 18. But they come and they bring all the supplies David's army needs. So David and the mighty men are ready. And Absalom and the rebels are ready. And who's going to win? I'll settle it for you. Nobody. David will win the battle. But he's not going to rejoice over it. Because by winning the battle, it means his son, Absalom, is dead. And the family on both sides of this battle are going to lose people that they cared about and that they loved. In the, in the Proverbs, 
the scripture says that the Lord hates those who sow discord among brethren. The Lord hates the act of rebellion among his people in his church wherever you go. The Lord lays out for us in Matthew chapter 18 that if you've got a problem with a brother or sister, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go to them and work it out. But the reality is, that doesn't very often happen. The reality is, we do what God hates. We sow seeds of rebellion between brothers. And occasionally splits happen, schisms happen within the body of Christ or within a church. And a church divides and now there's two churches. But let me ask you something. When the body of Christ divides and goes to battle, who bleeds? It's the body of Christ. Jesus bleeds. Who wins? Nobody. Nobody. When this battle is over, you're not going to see a parade. You're not going to see people celebrate. You're going to see people mourn. Because no matter which side wins, they lost because they're in a civil war, brother against brother. Joab's going to kill his cousin. Absalom's going to die. Ahithophel hangs himself. The downward spiral of David's life continues from his sin with Bathsheba until the day the Lord takes him home. And if you could have sat with him on his deathbed and asked him, David, was it worth it? What do you think he'd say? No way. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And it's not God's judgment. It is the natural consequence of David's choice. The Lord said, two roads lay before you. One leads to life. Where's the other one go? To death. If I take a detour and run down this road for a while, the consequences affect every aspect of my life. But, God gave us a glorious promise. You know what he said? He said in Romans 8.28, For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are, and in the Greek, the definitive article is there, and are the called according to his purpose. The promise that God gave us is that in Christ, God can redeem every bad choice we make. That in Christ, 
every dumb thing we ever did, the Lord can still give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. In Christ, to those who are the called. When the scripture says all things work together for good, it is defined by all things within the called. All things in the life of a believer. All things for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord. He will work all things for the good. He'll redeem it. He'll redeem it. God redeemed David's choices too. Who was born of Bathsheba? Who else? Yeah. Oh yeah, just a side note. Jesus comes through the lineage of Bathsheba. From David's greatest mistake comes mankind's greatest blessing. He redeems. He works. Ultimately, it's a good thing. But for David... It was hurtful. It was hard. It was difficult. It was difficult. But he did not choose the road of bitterness. He did not choose the road of anger to God. He did not choose the roads that were laid out before him. He chose, just like he did with Shimei, to say, whatever comes, comes through the hands of the Lord The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I serve him. Those are the words of Job. But I bet they were on the heart of David as well. He followed the Lord. He got himself on track. And for the most part, for his part... In the rest of what he's going to face, he's a man after God's own heart again. So important for you and I to make the decision that says, as men and women, I'm going to choose to stay a man after God's own heart. Because getting off that path is just not worth it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for an opportunity to study your word and to look and to see, God, what, uh, what your word teaches us in the life of David. Father, we just thank you. Your word, word is living and powerful. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God, you're able to do a perfect work through your word. Father, let us be open to what you want to what you want to do in our lives, Lord. And may we allow you to do, fulfill that promise. In Christ, you will redeem every dumb thing I've ever done. Thank you, Lord, for your promise. Thank you that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that your word declares that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Oh, I thank you, Jesus. May we learn by those who went before us the path that we ought to walk. And that with our choices, we would glorify the name of the one who bore my stripes upon his back. Who died on my cross. Who paid the price for my sin. May my life reflect rightly my love for him in everything I do. And may you be glorified in it, my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out with a word of worship. I invite you guys to worship with us. And we'll hang out in the foyer and have a time of fellowship. God bless you guys. Go in peace. strength and glory angels singing holy all surrounding forever you will stand your kingdom has no end oh holy God I stay amazed you were so much more than words could ever say oh holy God pour out my praise you wound into amaze you are loving beyond measure presence is the treasure I am seeking you are all-consuming fire I am your desire and you are mine wherever you will stand your kingdom has no end oh holy God I stay You were so much more than words could ever say. Oh, holy God, pour out my praise on the one who never ceases to amaze. 
as we fellowship, Lord, uh, Lord, uh, send us out in your spirit. Lord, send us to the other marts, most of the world, Lord. Lord, uh, send us into your harvest, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.